Aloha, this is Catherine Cruz. This is The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. Today we're talking about the sanctions handed down by the Secretary of the Navy over the Red Hill fuel contamination. Three retired admirals get an F for failure to lead. Those letters of shame now in their files. Two other admirals get letters of instruction, but what does that mean? Seven captains also in the process of being sanctioned, but is it enough? And post-Maui wildfires, we hear about how our keiki are impacted by tragedies and how parents can help them process trauma. Plus, this past weekend, the 2023 Walk to Defeat ALS took place. We'll get an update from HBR's Jose Fajardo as he deals with the progression of the disease that has now taken his use of his arms and hands. It is Wednesday, October 4th. the conversation here on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Today, a Red Hill Community Advisory Group meets for the first time in person at the state capitol. The Environmental Protection Agency is behind its formation. David Frankel is an attorney who's been named to the group representing the Sierra Club Hawaii, who early on battled the Navy over its spills at Red Hill. Last week, the Department of Defense issued letters of censure against three retired admirals for their leadership failure that led to fuel contamination and the spill of toxic firefighting foam. One commander called the letters a big deal. Another called it a punch in the gut. What does Frankel think? The sanctions are not even a slap on the wrist. They're really nothing. It's encouraging that the Navy has recognized what some of the problems were, but they aren't sanctions. I don't think the sanctions are the right name. It's kind of nothing. It's a letter in someone's file who's retired. It's, it's kind of meaningless as far as accountability goes. And the fact that they said that there was this failure to do things like make sure people were properly trained, that you ran drills. Kind of wonder, well, when did all this stop? So is it just under their watch or was it under previous admirals? What's discouraging is you hear the same, it's rinse, cycle, repeat kind of thing over and over. The Navy, when they applied for their permit to operate the facility two years ago, they were saying everything's safe. The leaks that happened in the past are in the past. They've improved, they've improved, don't worry about it. So it's the same thing. We're hearing that, oh yeah, we figured out the problem. We've improved, we've improved. I don't have a lot of faith. And that was attorney David Frankel, who we caught up with at a Red Hill open house gathering hosted by the military at Kehi Lagoon last night. We had questions about the letters of reprimand the Department of Defense sent out last week to several admirals as well as to seven captains whose actions are being investigated. Admiral John Corka's failures led to the release of AFFF, a toxic firefighting foam concentrate. He not only didn't follow contracting procedures, he didn't provide proper oversight during the installation of the firefighting system. Rear Admiral Peter Stamatopoulos was said to be negligent in approving an inadequate investigation into the fuel spill that led to the contamination of her drinking water. Rear Admiral Timothy Cott failed to call in an environmental assessment team following the spill and didn't let the public know the Red Hill well had been secured until four days after the fact. We reached out this morning to military attorney Natanya Gantz. She served as a major with the legal arm of the military, the Judge Advocate General Corps, or JAG. The letter of censure is it's kind of its own beast. You know, it's issued by the SEC Navy, so it's high up in that set. But what the letter is, 
is what is happening to these guys. It's a letter. So basically, it's like the Secretary of the Navy golding them, but in writing, if that makes sense. Now, it goes in their permanent files. And one of the things about this letter, this type of letter, is that they don't have a right to appeal it. You know, they can write something that goes next to that letter in their file. But, you know, these flag officers are retired, so nothing else is going to happen. I mean, that the letter of censure is it. You know, that is, it's not considered a punishment, but if it were, that is in fact a punishment, if that makes sense. And then I know that there are generally awards that commanders get for their term of service. Uh, and I guess in some of these cases, those are being taken back. What does it mean when someone has their uh, awards or medals stripped as part of the the sanction? How big of a deal is I that? I mean, it, it's, a, it's a pride thing, right? It's very much a pride thing. Nothing is going to change in their lives in terms of the amount of money they're getting, in terms of, you know, if they weren't retired already, then, you know, a letter of reprimand in their official file could and would likely trigger a grade reduction board prior to retirement. So they would potentially retire at a lower grade and receive less pay. But because these guys are retired, this letter of censure is, you know, I don't want to, I'm sure I don't want to say, you know, it's a slap on the wrist or anything like that but it's a letter in their file like that's all it is i mean you asked me earlier about what could happen you know the options available for retirees to the department of navy and the department of the navy has jurisdiction over them to bring them back they wouldn't even necessarily have to bring them back on active duty but to court martial them that is in their arsenal and that is certainly something they could do would they do it no i mean probably not it would be very very rare to court-martial retired flag officers. Yeah, I mean, we did see letters of censure sent out to the admirals that were involved in the Fat Leonard scandal for contracting in the Pacific. It mm. sounds like, though, then that's all this is, is just a letter, because they've stopped yeah. short of taking more drastic action. Yeah, it's just a letter. And, you know, sometimes I tell my clients when similar things in different branches of the service, I basically explain it as, you got counseled by a very high-ranking official. You, you were told, okay, you did something bad. Now, of course, when, you know, the officers who are still in the Navy and who haven't retired, more can happen to them and, and likely will. I think some of them are facing detachment for cause and so are going to boards of inquiry and things like that. That so, process, uh, is that pretty lengthy? It can be. Yeah, it, it can be. It can be months and then it's got to get approved by the Department of the Navy. So the ones who are still in, I would say that is a significant punishment at a, at a board of inquiry. Not only can they be kicked out, basically fired from the Navy, but they can also be kicked out with a very negative characterization of service, which would could strip them of all their VA benefits and things like that. So they could get an other than honorable discharge at a board of inquiry. And that's Another is an honorable discharge. It's not considered a punitive discharge, like a dishonorable discharge or a bad conduct discharge, but it's the worst kind of administrative discharge that you can get. And depending on how many years in service the officers have, I mean, they're also looking at, you know, if, if they're at 18, 19 years, 21 years, 22 years, I mean, they're looking at losing all their retirement, too. So really, the accountability for those lower-level officers and the punishment is steeper than these admirals are getting. 
I would say so. And then there were two other commanders who not only got their uh, military decorations, I guess they call it the end of tour awards, Mm -hmm. Vanderlei and Chadwick, uh, but they also got letters of instruction. Okay, and they're still in the service? Yes. Okay. Well, the letter of instruction, what that is, so that's different than the letter of censure. You can kind of think of the letter of censure as, okay, that's it. That's your punishment. That's all that's happening. The letter of instruction signifies that a detachment for cause proceeding is is on its way. That's kind of how I think of that. Before you can initiate, before the command can initiate a officer elimination or detachment for cause proceeding, uh, whatever the branch calls it, they have to do some type of counseling, rehabilitation, things like that. And one of the things that they often do in the Navy is a letter of instruction. So to me, that signifies that a, a detachment for cause is, is coming for those officers, but maybe not, and not for sure. Okay, well, in the case of Admiral Dean Vanderlei, that was for failure to, to exercise adequate oversight and to conduct a, a proper environmental risk assessment, you know, in response to the fuel leak. And for Robert mm-hmm. Chadwick, uh, for that commander, it was failure to execute fuel spill training or drills at the facility. But, you know, at what point do they say, all right, you folks didn't conduct drills, but, you know, what about the previous admirals that maybe had that responsibility? You know, when did those drills stop, I guess is my question. I know, right? Where do you put the blame and where does it end? And they can't, I mean, they can go back. In, in terms of administrative proceedings, there really is no statute of limitation. You know, Article 15 proceedings, there, there might be, but depending on the service and what statute of limitations they impose, but... In terms of administrative proceedings, there really is no statute of limitations. So they could go back with that. You know, the letter of instruction, that does actually concern me because if they don't do follow up with a detachment for cause, then the letter of instruction is really, really, really not. It's like corrective, like we need you to do better type thing. And then for the seven captains, the sanctions are still pending? I was just going to say for, for the officers who are still in the Navy, I mean, everything is available to the command. Everything from, you know, the the admonitions and the letters of instruction, and, you know, that's really on the lower end, to Article 15, where they can get, you know, restriction and lose their pay, to these, you know, detachment for cause proceedings, where they can essentially, you know, get fired from the Navy and lose everything, all the way up to court-martial, where court-martial, I mean, just depending on the UCMJ articles and everything and the level of court-martial, they're facing confinement and dismissal. The, the dishonorable discharge isn't available for officers. It's called dismissal, but it's, it's basically the same thing as a dishonorable discharge. It's just for officers. That was Natanya Gantz, a former major in JAG attorney, talking to us about sanctions in the U.S. military. She's a partner in the local firm Gantz and Bridges, which specializes in military cases. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii State Art Museum, now with a new name, Capital Modern, reflecting its location in Honolulu's Capital District and the modern art experiences it offers. Open to all Monday to Saturday, capitalmodern.org.
I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks FA, we reprise the show we did on low Earth orbit satellites and how they played a key communications role in Maui. We'll hear how teams on the ground in Maui quickly mobilized Starlink ground stations to connect fire survivors to the internet. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. The old Kane Access Hall Road in Maui could have made a difference in evacuations for the Maui wildfires. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Marcel Henri joins us today. Good morning. Morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yes. Now, I don't know Maui's roads that well, but do most people know about this Kane Hall Road? You know, that's a good question. I think people in, in the conversations I've had about this, you know, a lot of the locals would know about the old Kane Hall Road and kind of this network of these rugged uh, roads that are up in the hills above Lahaina and up toward Kanapali and, and beyond, you know, all, all over West Maui, really, um, that go back to the plantation and, and sugarcane days. And they were used to haul um, you know, sugarcane, uh, sugar back back to uh, the old pioneer mill in Lahaina. So, yeah, a lot of the locals are, are fairly aware of this, um, you know, visitors and, and folks that are, are new, you know, Malahini side that, that are that are in Lahaina probably didn't know about this. And so, you know, the day of the fire, you had so many people that were stuck in that nightmarish traffic gridlock on Front Street and Honopilani Highway uh, with the down power lines. So there's a story we have up on Civil Beat uh, today that is looking at the old Kane Hall Road, which does uh, shoot out of town uh, to the north towards Kanapali. And, you know, some people did, in fact, use it. There were some obstacles, even for those who knew to use it. There was a locked gate, uh, you know, farther up towards Kanapali. Um, they needed, you know, there's a there's a zip line operator who uh, would use that, that road occasionally for his the, the zip line tour that he that he manages and you know he wound up unlocking the gate but a lot of people hit that gate and turned around and tried to find other alternatives once they were up in those hills uh this the zip line operator who i talked to a, a, a guy named jordan imai who's born and raised in lahaina said you know a couple of his friends were even on dirt bikes down where this cana hall road intersects with one of the the major roads um in Lahaina that was, you know, seeing a lot of traffic, uh, Keave Street. It's over by the Lahaina Bypass. Um, and they were on their dirt bikes trying to tell motorists, uh, you know, trying to direct them and urge them to to get on this road, that it was there and it was available. And your reporting found that um, what Mayor Alan Arakawa was exploring using that, uh, what roadway is a possible evacuation route? Right. The the other part of this story is that for years there have been plans on the books to create what's called a West Maui Greenway. Uh, this would be uh, basically a multi-use trail, very pedestrian, bike friendly, all of those benefits that people tout. But the other part of this project was that it would be an evacuation route, an alternate evacuation route. And so the story that's up today investigates in, in some detail about how that that project has languished, even though advocates were pushing for it for years before the fire hit. And they're saying, hey, if, if this had been done, you know, it, it really could have helped, you know, people to your first question, were people familiar with it? 
more people would have been familiar with this uh, this route, and they could have used it to get out of town. So the funding for this plan, what, just got hung up? Yeah, you know, and so back in, about six or seven years ago, you know, Arakawa's administration was trying to get about one point, I believe it was about 1.2 or $1.5 million for it. The city council reduced that to about $300,000, um, and that went into, um, there's a, a very long story short, they kind of changed the scope of the project uh, and made it a, a little more difficult. They, they focused on a very difficult part of the project uh, with that money, changing kind of midstream, and uh, then it it sort of died. You know, I've, I've reached out to the county to ask them more about this project. They said it's still on the books. It's still, you know, might be delayed with everything with the fire, uh, but, you know, that it is still in the works. Uh, but I couldn't get a lot of details about, you know, the, the specifics of what, what has happened, what what the thinking was on their end in recent years and, you know, the likelihood of, of, it, of speeding it up given all that's happened in the past couple of months. Well, I think someone in your story called it perpetual planning, kind of in that's purgatory exactly in limbo. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks so much, Marcel. Thanks, Catherine. That was uh, Honolulu Civil Beats, Marcel Henri with today's Reality Check. Uh, read this story at civilbeat.org. Parenting After Tragedy is the title of free classes that Kaiser Permanente Hawaii is offering the Maui community starting today. They aim to help parents understand and address the emotional and psychological needs of keiki impacted by the devastating Maui wildfires. Dr. Gina Kellner is the lead child and adolescent psychiatrist for Kaiser Permanente Hawaii. The conversation's Russell Subiona got a chance to sit down with Dr. Kellner in our studio this morning. When a tragedy or a disaster like what happened on Maui happens, what kind of emotional or psychological trauma do children go through? Well, to start off, what I'd like parents to know is that kids in general are very resilient. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, lessons we've learned from other tragedies like 9-11, the wildfires in California in 2017, is majority of kids who have experienced trauma don't necessarily go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. So there are ways that parents can help to build the resilience in kids. And yeah, certainly recognizing what a normal emotional reaction kids may have, and it does vary depending on their developmental age. Such as with the younger kids, they may tend to regress, go to thumb sucking, bedwetting, versus the teens may kind of act out. They may do more risk-taking behavior. Those are some warning signs, certainly. There are different ways that kids will respond. And now we're almost two months out. Mm -hmm. You know, some of those normal reactions are normal. You know, the first month, there's still that, the shock, the numbness, and now that that's kind of settled. So being able to recognize, like, if certain warning signs have persisted, then to reach out and seek professional help. I know that we go through a specific grief process whenever there's death or, or there's something traumatic that happens to us. Can you talk a little bit about how children process grief? Do they still go through that five-step grief process? 
Yeah, the grief process that you're referring to, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross had Mm -hmm. talked about those five stages. I think it is helpful for parents to recognize that, not just in the kids, but in themselves, because kids tend to lean on their parents and look, you know, they learn from modeling. So when parents display emotional, physical health and do their own self-care and shield their kids from their own anxieties and adult conversation, you know, those things that adults should worry about and not kids, then, you know, that also helps build the resilience in the kids. And also recognizing different timelines. Like I said, people go through the grief process and it varies. Not everyone goes through all the stages in order and it may be delayed. So it could be a month later, two months, six months later, especially in kids. So the stages real quick. One way that I remember it is DABDA. So denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. I think it does help when even parents recognize that in other adults. The anger is the obvious one. You can see when people are passionate in anger. And just recognizing that, okay, I'm not taking it personally. It's you know part of that grieving process. This tragedy on Maui is unlike anything we've had maybe in our lifetime. And there is a very heaviness about it because of the amount of people that we lost. When there is this kind of death in our community, how can parents talk to children about death? So the concept of death in kids, it does vary again, depending on the developmental stages. So. A good way to remember is like age 10. That's usually around the time, and it varies, 9 to 11, when the idea of death being final is being understood by kids. When they're younger, they still have that magical thinking. You know, they think that it's temporary. So one thing that I will coach parents for the young ones, when you talk about death to kids, you want to avoid vague responses You want to avoid using euphemism because then that confuses them more. You don't want to say things like they're in a better place, they're no longer in pain, they went far away, they're sleeping, because then the kids might interpret it like, well, I don't want to travel far, you know, and if it's a better place, then when they're feeling bad, then I want to be in a better place. Mm -hmm. So using terms like dead, death and you know we will not see grandma again but you can soften it by saying things like but we have photos and memories and memories are forever so being very specific if parents aren't able to recognize that their children need help what are the short-term and long-term consequences what's going to happen if parents aren't able to catch that they need help processing their trauma. So like I had mentioned, majority of kids will not end up having PTSD, mm-hmm. but there is more of a risk if they already have an underlying mental health issue, mm-hmm. such as depression, anxiety. So this is where I feel as parents, we have that control in helping shape our child's trajectory, helping to develop that parent-child relationship to help them feel secure. So I would focus on that, like the stuff that you have control over. 
Kaiser Permanente Hawaii is offering parenting after tragedy classes. They're coming up tomorrow, Thursday, October 5th. I don't want you to give away everything that parents will learn at the classes, but what are one or two important things a parent can do to help support their child as they process through trauma? Yeah, I think some of the important things is parents, again, ensuring that they are doing their own self-care, shielding the kids from their own anxieties and the adult conversation, like the finances, just those extra nurturing, because again, a normal reaction for kids, emotional reaction, they may be more clingy, they may have trouble sleeping, you know, like I mentioned, the regression. So being able to recognize that, give those extra hugs, allow them time to talk, you know, letting them know that it's okay to feel what they feel. One way to remember is like people don't like to be told they don't feel what they feel. And especially with the younger kids who don't have that emotional vocabulary. So they may equate everything to scared anger. So acknowledging that they feel that and sometimes even just saying, yes, I'm worried as well, you know, and then kind of giving like a comforting statement. Outside of these classes that Kaiser Permanente Hawaii is offering, are you aware of any other resources that parents can turn to in this time to to be able to support their children this way? Yes. So Kaiser Permanente on Maui had come up with like a helpline. And as of last week, they've handed over to the Department of Health. So that's a good go to where, you know, parents can just call and then someone will triage. And this, this is regardless of your insurance and they will help guide you. There's digital wellness apps that are out there. The Calm app is the most common for the meditation mindfulness. A good website is the Child Mind Institute, childmind.org. They have an excellent guideline for helping kids cope after trauma. And speaking of the Parenting After Tragedy classes, can you share with our listeners information about how they can attend those classes tomorrow, Thursday, October 5th? Yes, it's free to the entire community, not Mm -hmm. just for Kaiser members. And it's the same class that's going to be repeated the next three Thursdays from 10 to 12 at the Royal Lahaina. At the Royal Lahaina. Okay. Free for parents to attend. I think it's also important to know that children cannot come to these classes, right? Yes, it's for parents only. Dr. Gina Kellner, thank you so much for coming in this morning. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners? Well, I think looking at the research on resilience in general, you know, one of the things that studies have found is the importance of the social connectedness. You know, very few resilient people do it alone. And so, you know, embrace the community, reconnect, you know, with the community. Yeah, stay connected, lean on your support. Dr. Gina Kellner, thanks so much for coming into the station this morning. Thank you, you're welcome. That was Kaiser's Dr. Gina Kellner talking with HPR's Russell Subiono. The Parenting After Tragedy class will be held at the Royal Lahaina from 10 to noon for the next three Thursdays starting tomorrow, October 5th. We'll have a link to more information on the conversation page of our website later today.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering Master of Science programs including finance, information systems, marketing, and more. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Aloha, I'm John Zach. Each Tuesday beginning October 10th during Morning Edition, All Things Considered and The Conversation, Hawaii residents share personal stories from their military service as part of HPR's collaboration with the StoryCorps Military Voices Initiative. The project, called Hawaii's Military Voices, is supported by Hawaii Pacific University. These veterans have a lot to say. Here's our chance to listen. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Chamber Music Series. Violinist Jennifer Coe performs Bach solo violin works and new commissions from her online series Alone Together, Tuesday, October 10th at UH's Orvis Auditorium. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. On today's Manu Minute, we've got the call of the O'u, uh, thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Laboratory of Ornithology. This native bird hasn't been seen in the wild in decades, but scientists are holding out hope that its song may be heard again. Here's your host, University of Hawaii at Hilo professor, Patrick Hart. <laughs> The O'u was once one of the most common of the Hawaiian honeycreepers across all the main Hawaiian islands, but was just recently declared extinct by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. It's about seven inches long, with males having a distinctive bright yellow head and a brownish-green body, while females are duller and without the yellow head. Both sexes use their unusual parrot-like hooked bill to forage on a variety of native forest fruits, such as ieie, Ohemauka and Ohavai, as one of the only frugivorous or fruit-eating Hawaiian honeycreepers, they're considered to have played a very important ecological role as seed dispersers across the forest, and would sometimes even venture down into lowland areas to forage on mountain apples, papayas, and other backyard fruits. The sweet, clear song of the male was a people's favorite, and it begins with a few distinctive whistled notes and ends with a series of downward notes known as a trill. Unfortunately, O'u numbers started to drastically decline in the early to middle 20th century, primarily due to mosquito-transmitted disease, and the last O'u were detected on Hawaii Island in 1987 and Kauai in 1989. Because O'u habitat is in dense wet forests not often visited by bird watchers, there's still hope among optimistic biologists that a few of these birds may still be out there somewhere. In fact, there's been a handful of credible potential sightings in the past few years on the Big Island. New bird detection techniques, such as placing automated recorders across the landscape, or even using eDNA, may help us get an updated answer as to whether the song of the O'u will ever be heard again in our forests. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. 
Support for Manu Minute comes from the Hawaii Audubon Society. For more than eight decades, fostering community values that work to protect Hawaii's native wildlife and ecosystems. Learn more about membership and other ways to help at hiaudubon.org. Walk to Defeat ALS took place this past weekend. It's an annual fundraising event to raise awareness about the neurodegenerative disease for which there is no cure. Last year, Grammy Award singer Roberta Flack announced she's battling the disease, and now she can no longer sing. Every year, some 6,000 people are diagnosed with ALS. HPR's own Jose Fardo, president and general manager, has been sharing his story. We sat down with him last week to get an update Jose got his start in radio spinning records, and in the last three months, he says he's lost the use of his arms and hands. So all things considered, I'm doing okay. Since we last visited, I've had some additional progression in my ALS diagnosis, uh, diagnosis that I received officially in May of 21, although my symptoms started in the fall of 2019. So since we last visited, um, I'm unable to walk now. Um, I am in a power wheelchair full time. I've lost the ability of both my arms and both of my hands. So I can't type, um, I can't grab anything. Um, so I am 100% now dependent on my wife, Jennifer, as my caregiver. Um, for everything from dressing to feeding, um, bathing, uh, toiletry, um, you know, using the bathroom, all those things. Um, but I'm, <clears throat> and also I've seen, I, I'm beginning to have, as you can tell, a little bit of deterioration of my voice. Um, my breathing is a little bit more. It uh, takes a little bit more effort for me to breathe. So I have a breathing machine um, in my office, and I'm getting one that I'll be able to move back and forth from home to office. My energy level tends to um, wane um, because everything is an effort for me. But that being said, since last time we visited, we have upgraded our bathroom so that instead of having a tub, we have a walk-in and we were able to receive from Team Gleason um, a grant that they paid for a shower wheelchair that allows me to slide into the walk-in shower on a track, which makes it a lot easier for Jennifer. We installed a ceiling lift that allows Jennifer to pick me up from my recliner with the sling, and then with a track that's on the ceiling, move me to my power wheelchair or the shower wheelchair with a lot more ease and safer than the way we were doing it before because it was, it's been a struggle to move. And then, uh, you know, our listeners can't see, but in front of me, I have my 
high-tech machine, which uh, allows me to communicate um, when, if ever I do lose my voice, or I can use it as my desktop, and the device allows me to use my pupils to navigate my desktop and to type out messages. So for example, I have a message here for our listeners. You're listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, HPR1. Hello, my name is Jose Fajardo. So that's my, <laughs> my voice that I banked early on in my progression. So it's my synthesized voice. So at least when I communicate with my wife or my loved ones or if I'm here at work, you could at least hear my voice and not hear a computerized voice, but my computerized voice. Yes, and I remember the day when I was walking by your office and you called me in and said, hey, I just voice banked my voice. Yeah, yeah. Is what it sounds like, you know. But, Jose, I have to say, I mean, we've all been in denial because, you know, my gosh, when you had your diagnosis, I remember it was hard to believe because you're so athletic and, yeah. you know, you're an energizer bunny. <laughs> and it's hard for us, but I know it's just so much harder for you and, and those, you know, around you, your family, your kids, you know, who aren't here. Your son is over in Florida. Yeah, still. My, all my adult kids are in Florida, but they've all have made the visit to Hawaii to spend time with me. I recently spent time with two of my youngest grandchildren around my birthday got to meet my brand-new granddaughter uh, who turned seven months old uh, on my birthday. So it was really sweet to see them, very uplifting. And, you know, Catherine, as you do, and the rest of the team um, do as well, we have a passion for the work that we do. And I still have that fire in me uh, to come into the office and work with our team to advance our mission. Um, and our listeners might have, you know, re might remember that I used to be on the air an awful lot during our membership campaigns, during morning edition, all things considered. And now they might only hear me, you know, once or twice here and there uh, because my voice, I just can't maintain my voice quality like I used to, or my energy level is just takes an impact when we do the membership campaigns. Well, we know, you know, just being here every day, you know, when we see you, it, it takes a tremendous effort, you know, uh, yeah. to be here, but you are here. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm still, you know, doing meetings and meeting with donors. And in fact, we have a major donor lunch um, later in October, and I'll be using, you know, the cab, their handy van to transport me from here to there. So we're, um, you know, I'm still as active as I can be, not just at HPR, but within our community. Uh, and the team has been incredibly helpful to me. Everyone um, goes out of the way to help. Um, I have one of the things that we started, Catherine, is also a lunch buddy program where friends um, are able to volunteer to help me with lunch because I can't feed myself. Um, so I have some friends who sign up and even some staff members that I have signed up. Last year, the board 
encouraged me strongly to get a ministry of assistant once they knew my progression was beginning. And I was able to hire a most wonderful ministry of assistant who's sitting to my left in Mia. And I could not do my job without her because she sets up my day, helps me um, do things that I can't do because, again, I don't have the use of my arms and hands anymore. Well, you know, I think, you know, you being able to share your experience and to help raise the awareness of yeah. ALS and this disease. I think the last time we had you in here, it was around the time about the decision on uh, AMX. Yes, yeah. the, the drug, you know, to be able right, to right. hopefully stem the progression of ALS. And I know right. at the time you said that that was not something that you could take because you were already too far along. Right, that and I just, my body wasn't able to deal with that specific drug. And now the uh, FDA is looking at another drug, Neuron, and they're actually were meeting um, this week and it's kind of their council that makes a recommendation to the FDA and they're struggling to get passage on approval of that drug that has shown some benefit and slowing down the progression and even returning some physical activities from neuron. But, you know, it's the process which can be very um, disappointing at times, especially when, you know, you see people who are very active as advocates as I am that are beginning to pass away from ALS. I mean, just yesterday we learned that this young man, Chris Snow, who was on a treatment that was experimental, and he was able to play hockey with his boys, mow the yard, he was able to walk, he regained some functions, and when the um, trial came to an end and that drug was no longer available to him, he started to decline, and he passed away this, uh, this past week. So, you know, we're... When you have ALS, everybody's progression is different. Your timeline is different. The way you progress is different. But the important thing is we have to keep fighting because we are making progress. There are new drugs coming online. And while they may not benefit me in my lifetime, however short it might be, but it's going to benefit others in the near future. Um, so my job, besides leading HPR, is to keep talking about ALS and advocate for it, educate people. We have our blog that's very active, teamjose.com, and I encourage our listeners to check it out if they want to learn more about my journey, because if not, then, you know, people with this disease can be easily forgotten and we don't have time. That was Jose Fajardo, HPR's president and general manager, who we sat down with last week. He's been sharing his story of living with the progression of a neurological disease for which there is no cure. We'll continue our conversation with Jose right after this short break.
Support for HPR comes from Hanahaoli School, accepting junior kindergarten and grades 1 through 6 applications online for the 2023-24 school year through November. Hanahaoli.org slash admissions. The Federal Trade Commission has entered a new trust-busting era. The focus now, tech giants, like Google and its control of data that flows around the world. It's the first big challenge to the monopoly power of this generation of big tech. Up to this point, big tech firms had not been challenged. Antitrust in the information age, that's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the Daily. Support for HPR comes from the Hawaii International Film Festival, presented by Hale Kulani, with films from around the world, beginning October 12th on Oahu and October 26th on neighbor islands. Passes at HIFF.org. get back to our conversation with HPR's Jose Fajardo. He was diagnosed with ALS just before the pandemic. He is still hard at work as president and general manager of the station, but he is candid about the realities of dealing with ALS daily. If you have cancer, there's better treatments. Uh, you might have a little bit more better survival, depending on the cancer, of course. But if ALS, there's no cure. It's a fatal disease. And, you know, the clock's ticking. This was not something that ran in your family? No. Only about 5% of all cases are passed along by genes. The other are sporadic. Nobody knows why you get it. It could be environmental. It could be you have a chromosome defect that makes you susceptible to ALS. It runs the gamut. And, and I think that's, you know, the awareness is raising the awareness. And, you know, last night I was Googling some more, you know, and I know one of the things that I saw that came out of Stanford was at one time they were looking at cases that turned up in Guam, where I'm from. And I grew up knowing it as Bodic and Lidigo. They suspected it had to do with diet. And they determined that a practice that we had of using a certain type of seed, pounding it to create flour and making our tortillas, that somehow... There were maybe some shortcuts in what we used to process the toxins out of the seed then contributed to these symptoms that yeah. were very similar to ALS. But, yeah. you know, so a lot of people, I think, don't know about that. Right, right. Well, um, and that's why, interestingly, you know, that's an environmental cause. Mm-hmm. There's, there's a high level of military individuals who get ALS, and that's because of where they're stationed they could have been exposed to certain chemicals, chemicals in water, you know, speaking of, you know, Red Hill, uh, that uh, could be a cause for ALS in the military community. And the thing is, ALS can also be misdiagnosed, and that's why, you know, it took a year and a half for me to get official diagnosis. I remember that day when yeah. you said, well, we think it's this, yeah. but, uh, you know, we don't think it's ALS, so thank heavens. But right. then it turned out to be Exactly, the case. right, right. And so, you know, the thing is, people should educate themselves because the symptoms are very different when it starts with someone. And, and not to scare, you know, the population, but... If you start to experience a twitching of your muscles or cramping 
of your muscles in your arms or legs, you feel a little wobbly or you feel like you don't have the balance that you used to have, go see your neurologist right away and just do a physical examination because with the physical examination, they can at least know that maybe there's something there that needs to be further explored. So the sooner you know, the sooner you can get on the limited drugs that are currently available for ALS patients. Yeah, you can reverse or, or at least slow at down least the slow progression. Down. Right, right. Yeah. And because I remember when I saw you, you know, you came in from running and you were limping and you fell, yeah. you know, and I, and you just thought, yeah, just being clumsy, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And that was an early sign that I wasn't being clumsy. It's just my feet were beginning to drag. My running gait was different. My walking gait was different. But who would have thought it? You know, you, you never think that it's going to happen to you. And then, you know, it does happen to you. But, I mean, you know me, Catherine. I'm a very optimistic person. I haven't let this disease define me. I don't sit in the corner, you know, depressed. I still enjoy life. I enjoy my work. I enjoy my colleagues. I enjoy my family. And so while I'm not able to do all the things that I used to be able to do, those things that I still can do, I enjoy as much as possible because I don't know what my sunset timeline is. You know, it could be three months, it could be three years, but as long as, as, long as my mind still works, I still have a passion for the work I do um, with the support that I have with the board and the staff, I'll continue to come in and, you know, lead this outstanding team that we have at Hawaii Public Radio. Well, we applaud you for your courage, Jose. We know that it's a difficult time. But like you said, you look toward the positive and and there's hope and we need to understand more about this disease. We need to learn about it because it it could happen to you. Well, what's next is just to pay attention to other drugs that might be out there to see if I qualify for early access program, which would allow me to take advantage of drugs that are still in trial that have a promise um, that I'm able to participate in. And we're, uh, we're trying to work with um, Queens Hospital and my neurologist, Dr. Da Silvia, who's been great, and the doctors from Synapticure to try to get a ALS clinic at Queens because research will show that if you are participating in an ALS clinic, your survivability or your life is extended by a significant amount. And we don't have that at Queens. So and what a clinic does is you go in in the morning and you see your neurologist, your physical therapy, your occupational therapy, your speech therapy, all the doctors in one setting that are all familiar with the ALS. Because what we have found um, outside of our neurologists is that a lot of doctors, nurses, don't really understand ALS, or even social workers don't understand ALS. Or PT, uh, my physical therapist, we had to educate you know, her you know, about ALS. I mean, she has some understanding. But, and that's the shame is, you know, uh, People who you think would know don't really know the, the um, specifics of ALS progression. 
So not only am I educating the audience in our community, but sometimes I find myself educating the members of the medical right. community the as caregivers. well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think, you know, you are fighting uh, to elevate people's awareness about this disease, and it represents hope. The more yeah. we know, um, the, the better we can deal with it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's hope. I mean, if, if you give up on hope, then you give up, and I'm not there yet. Okay, well, we're not giving up on you, Jose. Yeah. So you want me to sign off again with sure. the, the, our sound here? You're listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio, HPR1. Hello, my name is Jose Fajardo. Jose Fajardo, general manager and president here at Hawaii Public Radio. He's sharing his journey Dealing with the diagnosis of ALS, he has in the last three months lost his ability to use his arms and hands. He uses his eyes to work on his computer as he continues to work on the job. Check out TeamJose.com to learn more about ALS and Jose's journey. What's the frequency can at the show? We are all out of time, but tomorrow we plan to talk with Rear Admiral John Wade. He's tasked with draining the millions of gallons of fuel at the Red Hill Underground Facility this month. Are we ready? Still have concerns about Red Hill? Leave your feedback on our TalkBack line, 808-792-8217, or email TalkBack at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find your archived shows online by searching for The Conversation on Spotify, Apple, or anywhere else you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of The Conversation.